Section 11 of A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter 11. A Fight with a Fury. The noonday sun was staring hotly down an hour later, on a stirring picture of frontier warfare, with that clump of cottonwoods as the central feature. Well for Ray's half-hundred, that brilliant autumn morning, that their leader had had so many a year of Indian campaigning, he now seemed to know by instinct every scheme of his savage foe, and to act accordingly. Ever since the command had come in sight of the elk-tooth, the conviction had been growing on Ray that Stabber must have received many accessions, and was counting on the speedy coming of others. The signal smokes across the wide valley, the frequent essays to tempt his advance guard to charge and chase, the boldness with which the Indians showed on front and flank, the daring pertinacity with which they clung to the stream-bed for the sake of a few shots at the foremost troopers, relying evidently on the array of their comrades beyond the ridge to overwhelm any force that gave close pursuit. The fact that other Indians opened on the advance guard and the left flankers, and that a dozen at least tore away out of the sandy arroyo the moment they saw the line start at the gallop, all these had tended to convince the captain that, now at last, when he was miles from home and succour, the Sioux stood ready in abundant force to give him desperate battle. To dart on in chase of the three warriors would simply result in the scattering of his own people, and their being individually cut off and stricken down by circling swarms of their red foes. To gather his men and attempt to force the passage of the Elk-Tooth Ridge meant certain destruction of the whole command. The Sioux would be only too glad to scurry away from their front and let them through, and then in big circle whirl all about him, pouring in a concentric fire that would be sure to hit some, at least exposed as they would be on the open prairie, while their return shots, radiating wildly at the swift-darting warriors, would be almost as sure to miss. He would soon be weighted down with wounded, refusing to leave them to be butchered, unable, therefore, to move in any direction, and so compelled to keep up a shelterless, hopeless fight until, one by one, he and his gallant fellows fell, pierced by Indian lead, and sacrificed to the scalping-knife, as were Custer's three hundred a decade before. No, Ray knew too much of frontier strategy to be so caught. There stood the little grove of dingy green, a prairie fortress, if one knew how to use it. There, in the sand of the stream-bed, by digging, were they sure to find water for the wounded, if wounded there had to be. There, by the aid of a few hastily thrown entrenchments, he could have a little plains fort, and be ready to repel even an attack in force. Horses could be herded in the depths of the sandy shallows, men could be distributed in big circle through the trees and along the bank, and with abundant rations in their haversacks, and water to be had for the digging, they could hold out like heroes until relief should come from the south. Obviously, therefore, the cottonwood grave was the place, and thither at thundering charge Field led the foremost line, while Ray waved on the second, all hands cheering with glee at sight of the Sioux darting wildly away up the northward slope. Ten men in line, far extended, were sent right forward halfway across the flats, ordered to drive the Indians from the bottom and cripple as many as possible. But if menaced by superior numbers, to fall back at the gallop, keeping well away from the front of the grove, so that the fire of its garrison might not be masked— the ten had darted after the scurrying warriors, full halfway to the beginning of the slope, and then just as Ray had predicted, down came a cloud of brilliant foemen, seeking to swallow the little ten alive. Instantly their sergeant-leader whirled them about, and pointing the way, led them in wide circle, horses well in hand, back to the dry wash, then down into its sandy depths. Here every trooper sprang from saddle, and with the rein looped on the left arm, and from the shelter of the straight, stiff banks, opened sharp fire on their pursuers, just as Clayton's platoon, dismounting at the grove, sprang to the nearest cover, and joined in the fierce clamour of carbines. 
Racing down the slope at top speed, as were the Sioux, they could not all at once check the way of their nimble mounts, and the ardor of the chase had carried them far down to the flats before the fierce crackle began. Then it was thrilling to watch them, veering, circling, sweeping to right or left, ever at furious gallop, throwing their lithe, painted bodies behind their chargers' necks, clinging with one leg and arm, barely showing so much as an eyelid, yet yelping and screeching like so many coyotes, not one of their number coming within four hundred yards of the slender fighting line in the stream-bed. Some of them, indeed, disdaining to stoop, riding defiantly along the front, firing wildly as they rode, yet surely and gradually guiding their ponies back to the higher ground, back out of harm's way. And in five minutes from the time they had flashed into view, coming charging over the mile-away ridge, not a red warrior was left on the low ground, only three or four luckless ponies kicking in their last struggles or stiffening on the turf, while their riders, wounded or unhurt, had been picked up and spirited away with the marvellous skill only known to these warriors of the plains. Then Ray and his men had time to breathe and shout laughing comment and congratulation. Not one as yet was hit or hurt. They were secure for the time in a strong position, and had signally whipped off the first assault of the Sioux. Loudly, excitedly, angrily, these latter were now conferring again far up the slope to the north. At least a hundred in one concourse, they were having hot discussion over the untoward result of the dash. Others, obedient to orders from the chief, were circling far out to east and west, and crossing the valley above and below the position of the defence. Others still were galloping back to the ridge, where, against the skyline, strong bodies of warriors could be plainly seen, moving excitedly to and fro. Two little groups, slowly making their way to the crest, gave no little comfort to the boys in blue. Some, at least, of the charging force had been made to feel the bite of the cavalry weapon, and were being borne to the rear. But no time was to be wasted. Already from far up the stream-bed two or three Indians were hazarding long-range shots at the grove, and Ray ordered all horses into a bend of the wash, where the sidelines were whipped from the blanket-straps and the excited sorrels securely hoppled. Then here, there, and in a score of places along the bank, and again at the edge of the cottonwoods, men had been assigned their stations and bidden to find cover for themselves without delay. Many burrowed in the soft and yielding soil, throwing the earth forward in front of them. Others utilized fallen trees or branches, some two or three piled saddles and blanket rolls into a low barricade, and all, while crouching about their work, watched the feathered warriors as they steadily completed their big circle far out on the prairie. Bullets came whistling now, fast and frequently, nipping off leaves and twigs, and causing many a fellow to duck instinctively and to look about him, ashamed of his dodge, yet sure of the fact that time had been in the days of the most hardened veteran of the troop when he, too, knew what it was to shrink from the whistle of hostile lead. It would be but a moment or two, they all understood, before the foe would decide on the next move, then every man would be needed. Meantime, having stationed Field on the north front, with orders to note every movement of the Sioux, and having assigned Clayton to the minor duty of watching the south front and the flanks, Ray was moving cheerily among his men, speeding from cover to cover, suggesting here, helping there, alert, even joyous in manner. "'We couldn't have a better roost, lads,' he said. "'We can stand off double their number easy. We can hold out a week if need be. But you bet the Major will be reaching out after us before we're two days older. Don't waste your shots. Coax them close in.' Don't fire at a galloping Indian beyond three hundred yards. It's waste of powder and lead. Cheerily, joyously, they answered him, these his comrades, his soldier children, men who had fought with him, many of their number, in a dozen fields, and men who would stand by him, their dark-eyed little captain, to the last. Even the youngest trooper of the fifty seemed inspired by the easy, laughing confidence of the lighter hearts among their number, or the grim, matter-of-fact pugnacity of the older campaigners. It was significant, too, that the Indians seemed so divided in mind as to the next move. There was loud wrangling and much disputation going on in that savage council to the north. 
Stabber's braves and Lame Wolf's followers seemed bitterly at odds, for old hands in the fast-growing rifle pits pointed out on one side as many as half a dozen of the former's warriors whom they recognized and knew by sight, while Ray, studying the shifting concourse through his glasses, could easily see Stabber himself raging among them in violent altercation with a tall, superbly built and bee-designed young brave, a sub-chief apparently who for his part seemed giving Stabber as good as he got. Lame Wolf was not in sight at all. He might still be far from the scene, and this tall warrior be acting as his representative, but whoever or whatever he was he had hearty following. More than three-fourths of the wrangling warriors in the group seemed backing him. Ray, after a few words to Sergeant Windsor, crawled over beside his silent and absorbed young second-in-command, and bringing his glasses to bear, gazed across a low parapet of sand long and fixedly at the turbulent throng a thousand yards away. "'It's easy to make out Stabber,' he presently spoke. "'One can almost hear that foghorn voice of his. "'But who the mischief is that red villain opposing him? "'I've seen every one of their chiefs in the last five years. "'All are men of forty or more. "'This fellow can't be a big chief. "'He looks long years longer than most of them. "'Old Lame Wolf, for instance. "'Yet he's cheeking Stabber as if he owned the whole outfit. "'Another long stare. "'Then again, who the mischief can he be?' "'No answer at his side, and Ray, with the lenses still at his eyes, "'took no note for the moment that Field remained so silent.' Out at the front the excitement increased. Out through the veil of surging warriors the loud-voiced impetuous brave twice burst his way, and seemed at one and the same time in his superb poise and gesturings to be urging the entire body to join him in instant assault on the troops and hurling taunt and anathema on the besieged. Whoever he was, he was in a veritable fury. As many as half of the Indians seemed utterly carried away by his fiery words, and with much shouting and gesticulation, and brandishing of gun and lance, were yelling approbation of his views and urging Stabber's people to join them. More furious language followed, and much dashing about of excited ponies. "'Have you ever seen that fellow before?' demanded Ray of brown-eyed Sergeant Windsor, who had spent a lifetime on the plains, but Windsor was plainly puzzled. "'I can't say for the life of me, sir,' was the answer. "'I don't know him at all, and yet—' "'Whoever he is, by Jove,' said Ray, "'he's a bigger man this day than Stabber, for he's winning the fight. "'Now if he only leads the dash as he does the debate, we can pick him off. "'Who are our best shots on this front?' "'And eagerly he scanned the few faces near him. "'Weber's tip-top and good for anything under five hundred yards when he isn't excited. "'And Stoltz, he's a keen, cool one. "'No, not you, Hogan,' laughed the commander, "'as a freckled-faced veteran popped his head up over a nearby parapet of sand "'and grinned his desire to be included.' I've never seen the time you could hit what you aimed at. Slip out of that hole and find Weber and tell him to come here, and you take his burrow. Whereupon Hogan, grinning rueful acquiescence in his commander's criticism, slid backwards into the stream bed, and followed by the chaff of the three or four comrades near enough to catch the words, went crouching from post to post in search of the desired marksman. You used to be pretty sure with the carbine in the Tonte Basin when we were after Apache's sergeant, continued Ray, again peering through the glasses. I'm mistaken in this fellow if he doesn't ride well within range, and we must make an example of him. I want four first-class shots to single him out. The lieutenant can beat the best I ever did, sir, said Windsor, with a lift of the hand toward the hat-brim, as though in apology, for Fields, silent throughout the brief conference, had half risen on his hands and knees and was edging over to the left, apparently seeking to reach the shelter of a little hummock close to the bank. Why, surely Field, was the quick reply, as Ray turned towards his junior. That will make it complete.' But a frantic burst of yells and war-whoops out at the front put sudden stop to the words. The throng of warriors that had pressed so close about Stabber and the opposing orator seemed all in an instant to split asunder, and with trailing war-bonnet and followed by only two or three of his braves, the former lashed his way westward and swept angrily out of the ruck and went circling away toward the crest. 
while with loud acclamation brandishing shield and lance and rifle in superb barbaric tableau the warriors lined up in front of the victorious young leader who sitting high in his stirrups with one magnificent red arm uplifted began shouting in the sonorous tongue of the sioux some urgent instructions down from the distant crest came other braves as though to meet and ask stabber explanation of his strange quitting the field down came a dozen others young braves mad for battle eager to join the ranks of this new leader and ray who had turned on field once more fixed his glasses on that stalwart nearly stark naked brilliantly painted form foremost of the indian array and now at last in full and unimpeded view by the gods of war he cried i never saw that scoundrel before but if it isn't that renegade red fox why here field take my glass and look you were with the commissioner's escort last year at the black hills council you must have seen him and heard him speak isn't this red fox himself and to ray's surprise the young officer's eyes were averted his face pale and troubled and the answer was a mere mumble i didn't meet fox there captain he never seemed to see the glass held out to him until ray almost thrust it into his hand and then persisted with his inquiry look at him anyhow you may have seen him somewhere isn't that red fox and now ray was gazing straight at field's half-hidden face field the soul of frankness hitherto the lad who was never known to flinch from the eyes of any man but to answer such challenge with his own brave fearless sometimes even defiant now he kept the big binocular fixed on the distant hostile array but his face was white his hand unsteady and his answer when it came was in a voice that ray heard in mingled pain and wonderment could it be that the lad was unnerved by the sight in any event he seemed utterly unlike himself i cannot say sir it was dark or night at all events the only time i ever heard him End of chapter 11